that uh, great apostle William Shakespeare wrote a play which might be the most quoted text in the English language. The play is Hamlet. And in that play, there's a scene where a father gives uh, some advice to his son. And in the context of the play, we're not supposed to take any of this advice seriously. In fact, the other, while the father is sort of giving this advice to his son, who's about to head off to Paris for schooling, While the father is giving this advice, the other characters around this father are all sort of rolling their eyes like, oh, here he goes again. Because this advice, this advice is full of platitudes. You know what a platitude is? It's advice that nobody should have to say out loud because it's so obvious. In this advice, the closing bit of advice is this. This above all, to thine own self, be true. And it must follow as the night, the day, thou canst not be false to any man. This above all, to thine own self, be true. Now, in the performance of the play Hamlet, nobody's taking this advice seriously. But I think Shakespeare accidentally did something when he wrote this great advice. Like many, like most of the text of the book of Hamlet, it's all these sayings that we just quote to each other all the time. We've shortened this advice to a two-word expression, be yourself. And we give this advice as though it was the smartest thing anyone ever said. But if you just stop and think about it for one second, you'll realize it's not that useful to thine own self be true. I mean, if we just mean to say, have personal integrity, well, that, okay, good. But to thine own self be true, that means you're the source of truth. And we've taken this advice in the Western society and we have run with it to such an extreme that we are so true to ourselves we have completely lost track of the truth. We go about being true to ourselves in a way that denies reality. Obvious things right before our very eyes, we say, well, that doesn't, I have my truth. You've heard that expression, right? My truth. I'd like to modify this advice and say it just slightly differently. To the truth be true. 
to the truth be true? Can you rely upon yourself as the grounding of what you regard to be true? Well, I will tell you this. Jesus did not do that. And he was like the one person who ever lived that could have. Jesus said, I don't say anything from my own self. I only say what I hear the Father saying. I only do what he gives me to do and what I see him doing. I never act on my own. This is the one we follow. So we could modify this. Jesus also said, I am the truth. So we could modify this statement and say, to Jesus be true. And that would be much better advice. You see, what we've done in Western society is we've created the self to be God. We've made ourselves supreme. And what the ultimate consequence of that will be is total isolation. Because if you operate in your truth and I operate in my truth, our two truths may have absolutely no common ground. And so I have no basis for any relationship or fellowship with you. And if we carry this my truth, your truth, true to yourself philosophy to its logical conclusions, everyone ends up alone. That is the opposite of the design of God in the human creation. The opposite. And I would like to ask you this question as a Christian. Where is the source of claims that are the opposite of God's design? This idea, to thine own self be true, is not a biblical concept. In fact, I like this quote from a Lutheran theologian. We are sinners, he says, in that we revolve in our own self-reference and do so piously. In other words, what he's saying is this is the very definition of sin is to be self-involved. Luther called this the incurvature of the soul. Another guy said it like this, the choice of self as the supreme end which constitutes the antithesis of supreme love to God. What is the first commandment? The greatest commandment. Love the Lord your God with your whole being. Well, you cannot do that by yourself. 
You see, the human being is made in relation to others. Who am I? Let's say I decided I wanted to be true to myself. Where do I find this self to be true to? Who am I? Was I born as some self I could authenticate in this world without reference to anyone else? I don't see how I would ever do that. In fact, I was born in this world. That was something I had nothing to do with other than I was present. That flowed from a relationship between two other human beings. And having been born into this world, I would really have a hard time being true to myself if they were true to themselves. Because it was a lot of trouble to raise, feed, clothe, shelter, instruct me. And I have four siblings, so that trouble was multiplied. In fact, many people these days, being true to themselves, decide it is not a good idea to have children. And if you're going to be really true to yourself, that's probably true. But human beings were not made to be isolated individuals, but we were made to be individuals in relation, in fellowship. And we were made this way because we were made to bear the image of God who is himself an eternal fellowship of three persons. God, the ground of all things, is true to others in eternity. When we say, if we said this about God, be true to yourself, he'd be talking about being true to the other persons of the triune God. Jesus, when he says, I don't do anything on my own, he's true to himself in his being true to the Father in the fullness of the Spirit. There's an eternal relation and our very nature is created to reflect that eternal reality. And that is what the book of Ephesians is about. It is about oneness that does not eliminate individuality of persons. And so we're in chapter 4 where Paul says, because God has made this oneness, we should walk in a manner worthy of that calling, which means to be eager to preserve the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. And so we read then that there is one, one body, one Spirit, one hope, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, over all, through all, and in all.
And when this text says in chapter 4, that's chapter 4, verse 6, one God and Father of all who is over all, through all, in all. I think the all it's referring to is the all that is one in the body of Christ. In this instance, all is all who are one in Christ. All who have God as Father in this particular way. We could see that in chapter 1 where the body of Christ is called the fullness of Him who fills all in all. The church. Or we could see this at the end of chapter 3. To know the love of Christ which surpasses knowledge that you, the body of Christ, might be filled up to all the fullness of God. The fullness of God is an important concept in the book of Ephesians. And it has to do with this work of the Spirit that we read about in chapter 3. This work where the Spirit communicates Christ to us. The Spirit strengthens us to be occupied by Jesus Christ in faith. So that we might come to more fully understand and appreciate the love of God in Christ, which is beyond understanding and cannot be adequately appreciated. So that's an eternal project. So we have all this oneness going on. And then in the middle of chapter 4, well, not quite in the middle, but in verse 7, he says, but to each one. And it's very important for us to notice that our oneness doesn't erase us. Our oneness is a oneness with a plural. Just like His. It's a unity with a diversity all at the same time. And so if I go about to my own self be true, I end up all by myself. So I must be true to some other things also. Here he says, but grace was given to each one according to Christ's gift. In this text, according to the measure, the, the handing out of Christ's gift. So I want to say, what's Christ's gift? I tend to think Christ's gift is the same for you as it is for me, but apparently there's something different about it for each one. So that in my salvation, I also receive something from God in Christ that's just to me and you too. That there's a grace upon grace. There's a grace, a gift, a freely given something or other To each one. 
And if you look around this room, each one of us can recognize the others somehow, even though in some respects we all look alike. But in other respects, each one looks completely unique. And so when God made you, he made you with a certain set of qualities and attributes and a certain type of way of, I don't know, your brain waves running around. I don't know how he does it, but somehow there's something created in you that creates a certain type of personality or character, and we're different, all different. Each an individual. And here's something. When God creates a newborn Christian, the same thing happens. In the grace of God in Christ, there's some package unique to you that in your salvation makes you an individual part of the body of Christ unique from all the others. And there's billions of us. How does he do that? It's amazing. So who I am in Christ is not exactly the same as who you are in Christ. Wow. Grace was given to each one according to Christ's gift. And this was determined by the goodness of God under the Lordship of Christ without asking me. The Scripture says that God, in this is in uh, 1 Corinthians, that God gives each of us gifts according to His own desire. In other words, he didn't come to me and say, well, what do you want? What sort of Christian would you like to be? He just gave it to me. He made me. I did not make myself. I only exist as a creation of another person's. And that is true of me born into this world in the flesh, and that is true of me born again in the Spirit in Christ. Hmm. Oh, and by the way, this is connected in this text, conveniently this week, to His ascension. You remember in the book of John, John 16, Jesus said when the disciples were, He had announced He's going to depart, and His disciples are like, depart, you can't leave us. And He says, oh, well, Guys, if you knew anything, you'd ask me to go. Because when I go, I'm going to send the Spirit. And in the Spirit, I will be with you always. And that is going to be even better somehow than the life they had at that moment. It depends on his ascension, his... Resurrection, of course, which happens before his ascension, and of course, his atonement, which must occur before his resurrection. And his atonement is the only thing that qualifies me to be the house of the Holy Spirit. 
I mean, come on. The very God Almighty dwells in me in the person of the Holy Spirit. That is crazy. And the only reason that can be is because He atoned for me in His death on the cross. And in His resurrection and His ascension, He sends the Spirit. And He is crowned King of kings, Lord of lords, and He is seated at the right hand of the majesty on high. And He ever lives to intercede for me. So every time I fall short, which is more or less continuously, I doubt there's ever been a moment in my whole life where I haven't in one way or another been falling short of the glory of God. And He is there to say, He is with me. And so, I am clothed in His righteousness, not mine. Praise God. And so I have this standing. And even my particular creation, my new creation in Christ, is the gift from the ascended Jesus. It says it right here in this text. That He might fill all things. Again, we keep seeing fill in the book of Ephesians. And so, He goes on from there. He's moving from the one to the many who are one. And so he says, and he gave some as, some as apostles, some as prophets, some as evangelists, and some as pastors and teachers. Now we tend, when we read this in the modern church, at least the one I grew up in, we tend to read this as a list of what thing, a thing we call spiritual gifts. There's a gift of apostle. There's a gift of prophet. There's a gift of evangelism. There's a gift of pastor. Or there's a gift of pastor and teacher. Which is probably more likely reading this text. But I want you to notice what's being given in this text. Because it is not some spiritual quality or ability. He did, it does not say he gave some the gift of apostle. It doesn't say that. Also, you might want to ask the question, who's he giving the gift to? Because what this says is he gave some as apostles. Some as prophets. Some as... So what's the gift? The person is the gift. Not the special supernatural ability which might also be included in their makeup as a person, but that's not the emphasis here. He gave some people for this purpose 
and some other people for this purpose, and some other people for this purpose. And this makes me immediately ask the question, for what purpose did he give you? Or me? Because you are the gift in the context of the book of Ephesians. Now you could read in 1 Corinthians chapter 12, the gifts, you know, there's a, they're, 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 the gifts are the focus. Here, the gifted person is the focus. And the gifted person is the gift. He gave some for this, some for this, some for this, some for this. Oh, and by the way, there's a common purpose that all four of those have, which we'll get to in a second. But this is to notice that the person is the gift. Who's the recipient of this gift? There's only one conclusion in this text, and that is the body is the recipient of this gift. The church is the recipient of these gifts. The church itself. Now, if we take a hold of this concept for a second, to say, okay, each one of us, and this is stretching the idea from the text just a little, because here four particular groups of people are mentioned, but if each of us is a gift, if each of us is a unique creation in Christ, given to the body, then uh, I have some things I want to notice about that. First of all, it's not just about what a person can do. It's about who a person is. In other words, your contribution to the body is bigger than whatever task you perform at church. We tend to focus when we talk about this because pastors are the ones talking about this and we see lots of tasks that need to be performed and we want to harangue you so that you perform some tasks because there's work to be done and you need to do it. And all that's true. And I am going to harangue you about that this morning. However, the point is your part in the body of Christ is you. Not what you can get done for us. This is not a company you work for. This is the family of God, the household of faith, the body of Christ. And so your service might be to just show up and smile at people. I don't know. Or it might be to sit in your closet at your house and pray for somebody. And nobody ever sees you do it. And it might not be something you do at all. In fact, it must be bigger than that. You're the gift. And that is not just about what you can get done for us. Now, also, I would recognize that you, who you are, is partly defined by who you're with. Always has been. So who you are or who you were at the church you were in last and who you are going to be here might be different because the group you're in here is different 
And so what God might be giving to us by giving us you might be different from what God gave to them by giving you to them. That can change. In fact, what I do in this church has very little resemblance to what I did in the church I came from, other than it does involve teaching. Hmm. So who you are is partly defined by who you're with and what they do. The point here is you have a place in the body of Christ if you're in the body of Christ. And that place is determined by both how God made you and how He made the people you're teaming up with. Both. Third thing I want to notice is who you are and what you do is important to who we are as a local church. Who you are and what you do is essential. The scripture says never say to anybody that they don't matter in the body of Christ. They're not important. Everyone is essential. Oh, and no one is indispensable. God gave you for something to the rest of us. And whatever it was, or is, <laughs> we need that. Now God arranges the people in the church as He sees fit, and people move or change for this or that reason. People come and go for this or that reason. Who's managing all that? Believe me, it's not me. But here's something I would like to know. What are you doing here? I mean, why are you here? Now, some of this is obvious, and some of it is very mysterious. Some things we, some ways we operate in relation to one another in the body of Christ are obvious. I'm obviously preaching. And I hope serving you by helping you to understand the Word of God. That's obvious. Some stuff is not so obvious. We have a time of fellowship and we just talk to each other. And some things happen that we don't even notice that are building up the body of Christ. Simply by maybe attaching us a little more strongly to each other on an individual, personal level. That could happen. That happens. Maybe we get together for lunch during the week somewhere and some fellowship happens and some encouragement happens and a Christian becomes more in Christ as a consequence of a simple conversation that may or may not even include the mention of the name of Christ just by hanging out with their brother or their sister. 
They are encouraged, strengthened. The body of Christ is edified. If you're the gift, all of these things are true. Because God made each of us and placed each of us where he wants us in the body. And that's a two or three way street. It's what you have to give and what we have to give you together. Now, ultimately, of course, God is the giver. And that's important to notice. God is the giver. Now, these four particular types of people that God has given in this text are given for a reason. And the reason is stated quite clearly. He gave some to be apostles, some to be prophets, some to be evangelists, some to be pastors and teachers. I think that's four categories of people because I think pastors and teachers are two words for the same group of people, but either way. What are these people for? Well, it's right here in the text. For the equipping of the saints. For the equipping of the saints. Who are the saints? All the Christians. All the members of the body of Christ. All who are, have come to God in Christ. All who are born again of the Spirit. Every last one of them is a saint. Nobody has to declare you a saint for you to be a saint. There's no church council required. Saints are simply, that means the holy ones, the ones claimed by the cross of Christ. That's what saint means. Holy, set apart to God. And if you are in Christ, you are in that category. And so what are these people, apostles, prophets, evangelists, pastors, and teachers, what are they to do? Equip everyone else. Equip. Provide whatever is needed to prepare people. This word equip comes from medicine, and it was the word you'd use if someone broke their arm for setting it. Putting it straight. I don't like to think about the pain that might be involved in that. That's not really the point. But they're setting it straight. They're, they're making it serviceable again. It carries a, an idea of correction. Something's out of place and you're putting it back in place so that it can do the thing it's intended to do. So these guys are to do whatever is needed so that each person in the body of Christ can serve in the way they are called by God to serve. So God has given it to some people to help the other people do what? The work of ministry. The work of ministry. Now, <clears throat> when I read this as a pastor... I ask myself the question, with regard to all of you, what do you need to be who you are in the body? That's my question. 
because I'm in one of these categories. And what my ministry is, is to serve you so that you can serve in your ministry. Whatever it takes, whatever is needed, whatever you need, sometimes all you need is, hey, you want to do this? And again, I'm talking in terms of doing, and it's not entirely limited to that. That's how I should think about this as a pastor. What do you need so that you can fill your place in the body? That's equipping. Oh, and not just what do you need, but how might I find that and give it to you? Now, I'm going to close and we're going to talk we're going to talk a lot more about this cuz the chapter elaborates on this, but the question is who does this work of ministry? And what do you mean ministry? Last night I was at this gathering and Bob introduced me to some people and he said he said he's the minister I'm the minister. So uh, the answer to the question, who does the ministry, is the minister, right? Not in this text, it isn't. Now, the minister does some work of ministry. But the work of ministry the minister does is to get everyone else busy doing the work of ministry. See, the work of ministry is more than any one person. Well, and why do you have a group of people if only one is, you know, the minister? Who's the minister in this church? You are. And God gave you to this church for that reason. And we serve together. And as we're going to come to read in maybe next week or the week after, each part doing its part. And so, who does the work of ministry? The saints. And, by the way, why don't we just... Let's use a different word. Ministry. Because ministry sounds like the stuff ministers do. But ministry, the word in this text, is the simple word serve it's the word in the ancient greek language for the guy at the restaurant who brings you your food he serves you that's the word here and so the work of service or ministry the work of service is any service someone came in this week Thank you. To clean the church so that we would all have a nice environment to be in. That was a service. If you stand at the door and say hello and shake someone's hand, that's a service. If you make coffee, that's a service. And any service including just showing up with your smiling face 
is a service. You might say it's just an openness to fellowship and a responsiveness to the needs around you. It might have the same attitude of whatever. I see somebody needs this or I see we need this. I can do it. It doesn't have to be a job. It doesn't have to be permanent. It could be this morning. It could be next week. It could be a second. It could be a lifetime. It's simple, simple. Any work of service. And my job as the pastor or the elders of the church or the leaders or the founders or the scripture functioning in the apostles, the apostles and prophets functioning in the word of God in the scripture, all of that is for you to realize your being given by God to be a blessing to the people of the body of Christ. You're the gift. You're the gift. Let's pray. Father, I just want to stop and thank you for this gift. The gift of the congregation of the saints, the gift of the body of Christ, the gift of each one of us in the body of Christ. Lord, I pray that we would be occupied by Christ to find and fill our place, to be open to the people around us, to be ready to serve, to be expressions of your generous spirit, to live in the love of Christ. We give you thanks. In Jesus' name, amen.